Chris, as you know, last fall, Amy and I went on vacation and we went to England and Scotland. And when we were planning out the trip, I'm the one who does a lot of the planning. Amy, just the way her brain works versus mine, she she definitely contributes to the planning process, but doesn't really want to start until one month out. So as we're planning, I'm chatting with some friends that we're going to visit over in Edinburgh, and they said that it would be pretty easy to take a train from London to Paris and just spend a day in Paris. And this sounds really cool, and ultimately we decided to cut it just because the schedule was going to be very tight, and just from crossing into a different country, there's a lot of different customs that you have to go through just to get in and out of the countries. We would only be in Paris for a short amount of time. So so Paris just kind of has this siren song to people across the world that I've learned about. I know plenty of people who have been to Paris, have talked about it, and just like the mythological siren from Greek mythology, it sometimes doesn't end well for the tourist. Today, I want to tell you a little bit about Paris Syndrome. So Paris Syndrome is this informal term. It's not psychological. In There's not a lot of real basis to this. But it has to do with the extreme disappointment that some people have when they visit Paris. And oftentimes... This is from people who live in Japan, specifically. Other people, people from other countries do get it, but it does happen with Japanese the most. And some of the symptoms, are, they vary, but sometimes it's hallucinations, disassociation, anxiety, dizziness, sweaty, vomiting, uh, increased heart rate. So I don't think anyone has ever died from this, but about 50 people per year are hospitalized with some sort of condition that people would lump into Paris syndrome. And there's one guy in France who's been studying this and he's written books about it and he's kind of the expert on it. And he's one of the ones who's identified some of the problems with what causes Japan to be so susceptible to it. So a lot of people in Japan with them being halfway across the world from France, they have a very idealized version of France and Paris that they imagine based on the movies they watch. They see all these movies and they see TV shows and they might see posters or like images of beautiful things like the Eiffel Tower. And in their minds, they have an idea of what visiting the city is going to be like. And Japan has very clean cities compared to the rest of the world. And one of the things that they notice is they say that Paris is so dirty mm -hmm. and they had no idea that this was an issue. Another problem they have is that the way the Japanese speak is very formal. And just culturally, you're very serious when you're talking to people. And even if the Japanese can speak a little bit of French, there's a lot of sarcasm and humor that's thrown into like a French, which makes it a very informal language. And sometimes the jokes go over their heads or the, the, the people think it's rude. And... Some several of these things, as they all come together, you start to realize that Paris in your mind is not Paris that you're in. And if you are in a really fragile place in your life at this point, it can cause you to have a breakdown. And I spoke to my French coworker about this, <laughs> as I tend to do on the podcast. I need to talk to an expert about everything. So I spoke to Isabel, who spent... She was born and raised in France, and she's lived in America for about half of her life at this point. And 
she knew a lot about Paris syndrome and she hasn't witnessed anybody having an episode of Paris syndrome, but she totally understands how this kind of thing happens. So she has a son who's in high school and he's obviously been to France to visit his family here and there, but they watch the show Emily in Paris together, which is a popular TV show at this point. I, I don't watch it. My wife does. I know a lot of people like it. A lot of people hate it, but it centers around a character. I think it's Lily Collins and she works for a marketing agency in Paris and she's an American who moves there and some of the things that happen along the way. So Isabel, my coworker, works for a marketing agency and has a background at, like it being in France. So she's very uniquely able to comment on this kind of thing. And her son says, oh, this is what your life is like. This is what being in marketing is like. This is what it's like to be in Paris. And it's, it's nothing like that at all. And the reason I kind of wanted to talk about this today is to try to just remind everybody when you go on a trip, when you go somewhere new, it's okay to say, I want to go to this place because I saw it in a movie. I saw it in a video game even. Uh, but you have to know that movies, TV shows, video games, they're a work of art. They're not always going to show a realistic version of a city. And it's important to just as we do on the pod, do your research ahead of time and know what you're getting into so that you don't break down in the streets of Paris because you, they don't have the croissants that you thought they would. Welcome to the Factoid Podcast. You didn't ask for it, but we're going to tell you about it anyways. I'm Peyton Gessel. And I'm Chris Humphreys. Would you consider yourself a competitive person? No. My wife and I were talking about this recently because we are both not competitive to the point where we actually kind of have fun not competing with things. <laughs> That's funny. Uh, I think that competition can bring out the best in people. Uh, but when I think of competition, uh, truly, originally, I think of sports, right? Mm -hmm. And I am not, I'm not into sports. I'm not good at sports. I, th I think I've talked about this before. I'm terrible at athletic things. I don't run. I'm not, I played baseball as a kid. I was terrible. I played golf in high school. I was terrible. I'm just not good at sports. So traditionally competitive, I would not consider myself, but I am a competitive person. Sometimes uh, other people's accomplishments at things drive me to do better at the thing that they're good at, right? Uh, and I've always played video games. In high school, uh, there was this video game I played with my friends. Well, it, it was a single-player video game, but there was a leaderboard, right? And you could play, uh, you could see what your friends' scores were and stuff. It was called Doritos Crash Course. Uh, it, do you know what this is? Yes, I've heard of this. It was a free game on Xbox 360 uh, where it was just like a, an obstacle course. And your your little avatar on Xbox that you made, that was the, your character in the game. And it was basically an obstacle course like Ninja Warrior or like Wipeout where you bounce on trampolines and you'd avoid hammer swinging. And, and basically what you want to do is get from the start to the finish as quick as possible. And uh, so you could see all your friends' scores on, on the individual levels and on the complete like level packages and, and all that stuff. And so it was a super fun game. It was the kind of game that I really could get behind. Um, and, and just like sports, just like everything I, I do pretty much, I, I'm also the worst in my friend group at video games. I'm just not, I'm not good at them, right? Um. But this game gave me the opportunity to play hard enough and try hard enough to be able to beat my friend's scores. And, and maybe it's because my friends played the game one time and I played it 
for five hours to beat their score, but I would beat it, right? And so I competitive, I'm a little competitive, right? I'm driven by that kind of competition. But I really do think competition can bring out the best in people. I, I read this week about a guy who was definitely driven by competition in some way uh, to do something someone did not believe he could do. His name was Thomas Fitzpatrick, and he was at a bar drinking in September in the late 50s, in 1959, and he was just having a good conversation, drinking a little beer, maybe more things. I don't know. From what I understand, he was pretty drunk, and he's having a conversation with a guy, and and they started talking about how long it would take them to get from their location. They're in New York City, um, from New Jersey to New York City, and he said, I can do it in 15 minutes. And the guy said, you're nuts. There's no way that's possible. And they get in a little bar argument and they fight and they, they don't really fight, but they're, you know, verbally yelling at each other and they're having what, what drunken arguments that people have. And he thought, well, he doesn't think I can do it. I'm going to do it. So he gets in his car and he drives to New Jersey. And it turns out that Thomas Fitzpatrick is a pilot, right? So he drives to the airport, Teterboro airport in New Jersey, steals a plane and he flies and he lands his plane downtown on the road right outside the bar in New York City. Is he drunk when he does yes, this? Yes, he is completely drunk. And which is, is that's a wild sight, right? It's, it's three o'clock in the morning. Uh, they get in a fight and he's like, oh, I'll show him I can do it. And so he does. He goes, he steals a plane. He flies it, lands it literally in the middle of New York City on the road. Doesn't use lights, doesn't use the radio, like a completely illegal flight. And people have talked about what kind of feat of of flying this is like of uh, like it's not easy to land a plane somewhere like that and this is a single engine small plane but people think like this is a pretty amazing thing that he did especially considering how wasted he was right and so it's crazy so he went as far as as flying a plane from jersey to the actual city of new york city landing on the road to prove to to someone he could do what they didn't believe he could do. And, and what's really interesting about this is you'd think you'd get in trouble for something like this. Sure. Well, he, well, he did, but the owner of the plane didn't want to press charges on him. Maybe I, I like to think that I don't really know why, but I'd like to think it's because they thought that's one of the coolest things I've ever heard. <laughs> like that. He just did like, he stole my plane. I get it. I don't love it, but that's pretty amazing. Now I can tell all my buddies that my plane was used for this. Right. right. Don't so do he, it again. So he didn't want to, to press charges on Tommy. Uh, so he didn't. And so all they could do was they ended up being able to find him like a hundred bucks. So he got fined a hundred bucks. He gets off basically scot-free from this incident, but that's not even the craziest part of the story. Two years later, literally two years later, he finds himself in a similar area of New York city in a bar drinking at night. He, he actually, he did get his pilot's license suspended, right? And he, for six months and he never re-upped it. So he's sitting in a bar and he's getting drunk like he was that same night. And uh, he's telling another guy in this other bar what he did that, that night two years ago. Hey, I flew a plane. from. I told a guy I get there in 15 minutes. And he said, no, you couldn't. And, and I just flew a plane and stole a plane and flew it here and did it in 15 minutes. And the guy's like, I don't believe you. That's not true. He's like, I promise it's true. He's like, I don't believe you. So Tommy gets in his car, drives to the same <laughs> airport steals a plane, flies it, and lands it on the road in downtown New York City right outside the bar that he was arguing with that new guy to prove to him, like, I did it. Like, talk about being driven by your competition, right? <laughs> like, that's a, like that's crazy. Uh, but this time, he, he wasn't so lucky. He did get in trouble for this. I think he went to prison for six years. And if you ask the guy, well, he's 
he's passed away now, right? But if you ask the guy when he was alive, you know, what made you do it? I'm pretty sure his quote was something like, it was the bad drink that made me do it or something (laughs) like that. Like it was some crazy quote, but imagine being competitive enough. I shouldn't, I shouldn't judge because like I said, I'm driven by my competitive nature a little bit, but it's hard to believe. It's hard to believe. It's a story. It's hard to believe, but it's true. It's a legitimate story. I feel like this guy has to have a nickname. Are there any nicknames that Fitzpatrick went by? I think, th- I, I think, uh, if I'm not mistaken, people called him the good old Tommy Fitz. And, and I think there is actually, there's a drink named after him. And I think it's called the late night flight. It's like a, it's like a cocktail or something. Okay. And I think you can, like, I believe that that is still a thing, uh, that it's based off of this, this thing, this Tommy Fitzpatrick, but I don't know. He, he's actually an interesting person. He's like a veteran who got injured in the Korean war. He has like a purple heart. He's like a pretty, uh, he's got a really interesting history. Um, but yeah, the bad old drink can make you do a lot, I guess. <laughs> When I lived in Indiana, I got the opportunity to listen to a very interesting guest speaker give a presentation for several years in a row. I think I helped out three different times for this. And uh, the woman's name was Eva Moses Kaur, and she was a Holocaust survivor. And even more crazy than that, she was a twin that's a Holocaust survivor. Mm -hmm. And she was actually experimented on by Joseph Mengele, who had, for those of you that know, had an obsession with twins in trying to see, like, if you poke the one in the arm, will the other one feel it? Like, terrible things. And I got to just, like, record video and audio of some of these presentations. And it's the same presentation every year, but it was meant for middle schoolers just to teach them about the Holocaust and some of the things that she went through. Eva is a fascinating lady, and I feel like I've learned a lot just from from listening to these. She actually had a, a documentary that came out maybe a few months before she died in 2019. And one of the, the cool things about her is that in the face of all these terrible things that have happened to in her life, she really focuses on trying to try to remind people that forgiveness is often the best option, that she has written letters not delivered, but she's written letters to all the people that harmed her during the Holocaust as a way for her to cope with hmm. things that happened. There was an incident maybe 10 years ago where she was like kissing an old Nazi in a courtroom. <laughs> like he was being put on trial and for being like working at a concentration camp. And even though she recognizes that this guy did terrible things when he was a teenager, she goes and like, kisses him on the cheek and then all the tabloids are like are having a field day so she's very fascinating and whenever i would finish up like watching the presentation i usually would do some some googling and researching on some of the things related to eva and one thing i noticed every year is that i would usually start on her wikipedia page and then eventually i would be looking into some of the things like where she grew up and then I'm looking at a castle and then I'm going down that Wikipedia rabbit hole. And the first sentence of her presentation every year really stuck out to me. She would say, I was born in Transylvania. So my research usually started with things about Eva and it almost always ended up about vampires. (laughs) 
So thanks to the film industry and pop culture, we have a lot of different monsters that show up in horror movies that everyone just kind of understands the basic rules of how they work. And there are things like zombies or vampires, as we're going to talk about today, where everyone kind of just knows a few things about how vampires work, at least the logic in fiction. So for example, Chris, what things should, what things does everyone know about vampires? They got the teeth and they want to suck your blood and something about sunlight and they're really white and the cape. Yeah, exactly. So all, all of these are definitely part of like that stereotypical vampire. And there is a long list of weaknesses for vampires compared to a lot of other like your Frankenstein's and, and th- Frankenstein's monster is technically the way to say it. People on the internet get mad about that. So I have to say it right. Not Frankenstein, but uh, with vampires. Yes. So they have sunlight as a weakness, garlic, uh, wooden stakes, crosses. There's silver bullets. Is that a thing uh, in some fiction? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Silver bulls can definitely be in there. Um, and one of the weird ones that I found was a bag of rice. Hmm. And the idea is that you want to spill a bag of rice over the grave of where a vampire is sleeping during the day. And the goal is that when he wakes up, he's going to see the spilled bag of rice and he has to count every single grain of rice that spilled out of the bag and... Ultimately, it will take so long that he the sun will start to come back out and he will have spent his whole night counting the rice and go back into the coffin and he'll just do this forever. In, forever. Why do they have to keep counting it? Because people think they have obsessive compulsive disorder. <laughs> Specifically, arrhythmomania is, is the type. And I think... If you look at the way a lot of monsters have been formed in history, uh, a lot of times that you could say that maybe people didn't understand mental mental illness at the time. And sure. there are times where I'm sure there are people in history who like had a, a mental illness that people just assumed the worst about. And then it starts to kind of take a life of its own. I don't know. But um, what I thought was really interesting about this is... Sesame Street has Count Von Count. He was a vampire who loves counting. And I recently heard someone saying this and talking about the bag of rice and saying that even though it appears that the Count enjoys counting, that he actually can't help and he has to count. And that's what I originally was going to do this episode on. And then I found out there is so much more to this that it really has reshaped how I feel about vampires. Wow. Yes, they are. There is so much more going on. So we have to learn a little bit about the ancient pagan religions of Eastern Europe, specifically the Transylvania area, but there's a wide variety throughout Eastern Europe. And they would worship agriculture gods, and they were known to have traits like rebirth, reawakening, and like reviving the dead and when we think about some sort of pagan god that revives the dead you think of it like reviving a human or something but there are a lot more things that die in the world than just people yeah plants die all the time 
So a lot of these pagan gods would be associated with the death and the rebirth of plants. Obviously, a lot of times it's a new plant that's growing up in the place of the old plant or the tree goes dormant over the winter. But to the people of that time, it seemed as if all of this plant life was getting killed and then brought back to life. And then there started to be gods that they were not worshiping, but they had to overthrow every year. And you have these gods that are the personification of death. And the people have to perform this ceremony called like the driving out the death ceremony, where you usually are making an effigy of death and you're putting them in a fire and essentially burning them. And the idea is that death was killing all of your plants over the winter and all of your crops. And you have to drive out death in order for spring to begin and all of your plants to start growing. So now you have kind of this villain who is known to die and cause things to die every winter, like on a cyclical basis, and then comes back to life. And then you got to kill him again. And you have to do this again and again. So it's not that hard to for the people of Eastern Europe to believe in a humanoid monster who a lot of these people believed these gods of the underworld lived underground. So you have these people believing that there is some monster that lives in the ground, comes up, you got to kill him, and then he's going to keep coming back. So the, these people start to come up with diversions and ways to keep death from killing their crops so that they'll have a, they want to have a good harvest. And one of the methods that they would do as, um, as this vampire lore is starting to form is they would bury a scythe in the ground with the suspected vampire. Now that seems very counterintuitive. Why give the undead monster a big sword weapon thing? But while scythes look like they're very good for, uh, weaponry and, and killing on their own, they're actually not very good. They're, if the target is moving, apparently it is very difficult to land a hit with a scythe. And a scythe is actually used for harvesting. And as a side note, this is partially why the Grim Reaper carries a scythe. Uh, it, it, and it ultimately is because these vampires, they're gardeners. <laughs> So the bag of rice, the vampires aren't counting the grains of rice because they have obsessive compulsive disorder. They're counting the grain because they're taking inventory. They are just trying to do their jobs and you're making them work a graveyard shift <laughs> in order just to get their work done. And they're working them to death. And that just really blew my mind. And... I just transplanted my, my plants into our garden in the backyard a few days ago. And now I'm starting to wonder if I need to drive out death here in the next few days or my crops aren't going to do well. Yeah, vampires, man. <laughs> vampires, man. Thank you for listening to the Factoid Podcast. We wanted to let our audience know that for our 10th episode, we wanted to make that a special episode that was all full of listener-submitted questions and factoids. So what we want you to do is, if there is a topic that you would like to know more about, 
but you do not want to research it, send us an email at what's yours at factoidpodcast.com and just give us kind of our prompt and maybe any some small bits of information, what you want to know about. And we would love to tackle that in our upcoming episode. And I'm really excited about this. We've gotten some submissions already, and that's kind of what inspired this idea to do the every 10 episode kind of thing. But yeah, we just want to round it out and do our best for you guys. You guys can find us on all the major podcast platforms, or if you want to check out our website, it's factoidpodcast.com. We'll see you in two weeks.